Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We are announcing the initiation of what we're calling the BC Vaccine Card to make sure that when you go out to non-discretionary activities uh, that you can go to uh, with the confidence that those around you have also taken steps to protect themselves and their families. Okay, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that, of course, is the voice of Premier John Horgan this week announcing BC's new vaccine card system set to kick in next month. Proof of vaccination to be required now to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, casino, sports event, concert, even indoor weddings and birthday parties. This is the toughest vaccine requirements we've seen in Canada to date. Now, it was not always the approach here in British Columbia. Just a few months ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry said she had concerns about a vaccine passport system, and she was recommending against a BC vaccine card at that time. Now, have a listen to this here. You'll hear her mention BC Ombudsperson Jay Chalk here, who's my first guest and standing by. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking in May. This is something that uh, obviously we've been, I've been paying a lot of attention to, been working with uh, Jay Clark and his team at the Ombudsperson um, to make sure that it, it goes back to some of the things that we've seen, um, Minister Callon mentioned as well, that this virus has shown us that there are inequities in our society that have been exacerbated by this pandemic. And there is no way that we will recommend um, inequities be increased by use of things like vaccine passports for services for public access here in British Columbia. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking in May. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jay Chalk. Jay Chalk is BC's independent ombudsperson, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jay, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Okay, it was interesting to hear Bonnie Henry talk about how she consulted with you uh, months ago on this issue. I recall that you put out a statement at that time urging the government to be very cautious about this type of approach, vaccine cards, vaccine passports domestically that would restrict what people can do. Can you tell me a little bit about how that how that all went down? Like what kind of consultation did you have with her and what did you tell Dr. Henry at that time? So absolutely. So um, some three months ago, um, Canadian ombudsman offices across Canada uh, were you know, obviously watching what was going on, not just in Canada, but really globally. Uh, as countries were kind of looking at this question. Um, and so we issued a national guidance document stressing, uh, as you pointed out, a cautious approach that really put fairness at the heart of any potential vaccine uh, vaccination certification system that's applied to public services. So that's an important distinction, wow. public services, wow. because government has to serve everybody. And the government has found a way um, during the pandemic uh, uh, to serve everybody. It may not be perfect, may not be the way it's always been um, uh, in terms of in-person services, but government's found a way. And our concern was that government needed to continue to find a way to serve everybody, notwithstanding um, uh, people's uh, vaccination. There's a phased rollout. There were all kinds of reasons why government needed to continue to serve everybody. So we issued the guidance document, uh, and it was aimed at 
provincial governments uh, and territorial governments across the country, um, uh, but but really also aimed at all the public bodies that are under ombuds jurisdiction, and that includes, for example, the education sector, the public education sector, K to 12, post secondary. Um, and it was really to plant the seed with public organizations and with the public that, you know, if vaccination certification does start to happen, that it do it that it is in a way that's fair and reasonable uh, and just. Right. And so the vaccine card that's being introduced in British Columbia would not apply to, and I think that important distinction you just described there, public services, right? So it's not like you'll have to show proof of vaccination in order to go to a hospital or access government services, correct? That's right. The, the yeah. big picture The big picture is that in D.C. so far, the government has recognized that there's a difference between those essential public services that have to be available to everybody and discretionary private, privately delivered services, casinos, uh, theaters, sports events, etc. So the role of an ombuds is over those public services. And it's good to see that we, see, we still see the caution uh, before public services um, uh, are being asked or, or suggested that they use vaccine certification. But yesterday's, so that was the announcement Monday. Yesterday there was an announcement about the post-secondary sector that did indicate that uh, vaccine certification um, uh, would be required to live in some student housing. And so that's uh, an area that obviously we're going to be uh, digging in on. Well, is that a public service, in your opinion? These are publicly funded educational post-secondary institutions and vaccine requirements to live in residence, also vaccine proof of vaccination required to attend events on campus. Do you have any concerns there as the ombudsperson? So I think I think the reference to events on campus was really to say that the the announcement Monday things like going to a bar um, um, that those would apply on campus uh, as well. That was my understanding from the announcement yesterday. Um, but the announcement also did indicate that uh, in some types of student housing, uh, vaccine certification uh, uh, would be required. Um, it's clear that there, uh, there's still work to be done to determine which types of uh, student housing that would apply to. Um, uh, it's no question that student housing operated by a public body uh, is an essential service. Uh, 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 you know, it's housing for people to be able to go to university or go to college. Uh, and um, it, those, uh, those institutions are, are under our jurisdiction. So uh, it is a concern uh, to us, but we are interested in the subsequent conversations that are going to uh, take place to determine what type of student housing that would apply to. Obviously, vaccine certification um, shouldn't depend on who your landlord is, whether it's a university landlord or a, a private landlord, but rather on the risk uh, that the type of congregate living that you're in poses. Right. And, uh, and so one, one uh, you know, can imagine that there are types of student housing, uh, graduate student residences, et cetera, that look a lot like, a, like in a private apartment. So that's the kind of discussions that I expect the provincial health officer and the universities are going to be having uh, in the days to come and something that we'll be interested in, in watching. Okay, I'm speaking to BC Ombudsperson Jay Chalk. The announcement earlier this week uh, said there would be no exemptions for British Columbians who cannot receive a vaccine, for example, for medical conditions. I want to play a comment here from you for you from Dr. Bonnie Henry on that point and then get your thoughts on the other side of this. So here's Dr. Henry. The short answer is no. Um, this is a temporary measure that's getting us through a risky period where we know that people who are unvaccinated are at greater risk of both contracting and spreading this virus. So if there are 
um, those rare people who have a medical reason why they can't be immunized, they, these are discretionary events that we're talking about. So they will not be able to attend those events through this period of time of high risk. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there asked, are there any exemptions for people on the vaccine card? And you heard her say, no there. Do you have any concerns as the ombudsperson for British Columbia that there's no exemptions built into this system? So Dr. Henry, in in, uh, in her comment there, stressed that those are with respect to discretionary uh, events that were the subject of Monday's announcement, which were, as I said, things like uh, casinos and bars and sports events. Um, so not something that is of concern to me as the ombuds uh, person, but to the extent that uh, one were to apply um, uh, those, um, uh, you know, that kind of a rule to public services, that could well be the subject of complaint to us and uh, um, uh, that may, uh, if there was an extension of that kind of concept to public services, that would could well be something that uh, uh, people could complain to us about. Uh, to do that, they just need to uh, go to our website, bcombudsperson.ca, uh, or call us at 1-800-567-3247. Um, but that is not, you know, that was not the nature of the, the announcement Monday. But um, um, as you pointed out, things have been changing uh, through this. So we'll see, but not, uh, you know, certainly not, uh, you know, something that's applied yet. There are people who are upset about this vaccine card uh, for for a multiple reasons. Some people think it's too onerous, it goes too far, and then there are others who say it does not go far enough. And there are calls for mandatory vaccination in the school system, for example. Some people think that all teachers should be required to get the vaccine, that students should be, get required. I'm going to speak on the show later today to the president of the Students' Union at Simon Fraser University. They want mandatory vaccination on campus. So do a lot of faculty groups. They're saying we want vaccinated professors, staff, students on university and college campuses. This is obviously a public service, public education. What are your thoughts on that as the ombudsperson on a mandatory vaccination at schools, colleges, and universities? So in yesterday's announcement by the Minister of Advanced Education and Dr. Henry, um, they, uh, the announcement uh, included a reference. They indicated what rules would apply on campus, uh, uh, and that was uh, uh, you know, various masking requirements and, uh, and the uh, requirement of vaccine certification in some student housing that we just talked about. But in addition, the announcement also indicated that post-secondary institutions may choose to take further steps uh, involving vaccine certification, but it, the announcement said if they did so, they needed to be, in the words of the press release, quote, doing their own due diligence. Uh, that was, a, I think, a, a, a caution to the, to the universities and colleges that if they want to go beyond the, yesterday's announcement that, uh, uh, that they needed to do their own due diligence. So, uh, since yesterday's announcement, I've written to the head of all of British Columbia's universities and colleges, and I've sent them uh, our guidance document that uh, that we issued in May that has 10 uh, really best practices uh, uh, that relate to vaccine certification. Uh, and I've offered the assistance of our office so that if they are, if they do choose to take further steps, that they reduce the risk uh, of some sort of unfairness occurring. So. Um, you know, our, our, uh, our guidance principles include things like making sure that any further decision is evidence-informed, so not just because someone wants it, but rather that there's actual evidence that it's going to mitigate risk, 
um, um, that uh, there are accommodations for uh, people who have not received the vaccine. We talked about that a minute ago. And that any decisions that are made regarding uh, uh, someone's access to a public service uh, uh, based on someone's vaccine status be done in a procedurally fair way with all the traditional rules that ombuds care about in terms of administrative fairness. So, um, um, so while there may be calls uh, for it, I think you know, it's incumbent on administrators of uh, British Columbia's post-secondary institutions to uh, take any further steps, um, uh, but, but uh, in doing so, uh, exercise... Uh, uh, lots of ca- caution and, do- and, and due diligence that we called right. for three months ago and that, uh, frankly, the minister called for yesterday. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, it's a complex issue, and I'm sure that there'll be more, uh, you know, rolling out over the next little while, and uh, uh, anytime, happy to talk. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's uh, keep talking about mandatory COVID vaccination and requirements to show proof of vaccination. Some people think that the announcements that came down this week from the government uh, go too far. Others say they don't go far enough. How about what's going on in post-secondary institutions in British Columbia, BC colleges and universities? It's really interesting to listen to some of the faculty associations. We've had them on the show here, notably at UBC, also the University of Victoria. They're saying they want mandatory vaccination. Yeah, make us get the vaccination. We want it to be mandatory. Some of the student unions on university and college campuses also saying the same thing. Yes, we want it. Bring in mandatory vaccination on campus. Now, Dr. Bonnie Henry not going that far. Have a listen to this. So this is Dr. Henry yesterday, yesterday, and she was asked, why is there no vaccine mandate for BC universities? Here's what she had to say. We know that the in-classroom setting is not the risky setting. And it's incredibly important that we don't put barriers in place for people receiving education. Okay, so she does not want barriers for people going to college and university. And she also said that it's low risk when you're in a university or college classroom. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Gabe Leosis. Gabe is the president of the Simon Fraser University Student Society. Um, Please welcome him. Gabe, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Hey, Gabe, what would you like to see on campus? You want mandatory vaccination, correct? Yes, we do. Firstly, I want to start off by just affirming what we were happy to see in yesterday's sure. announcement from okay. the, the p- provincial health officer. We were incredibly happy to see that a mask mandate was being reinstated and that they are required for classrooms and labs. That is a good step. That is a step that we are happy about. However, we know that the two biggest and most effective tools that are out there in terms of curbing the spread of COVID-19 are one, masks, and two, vaccinations. And what we heard from the provincial health officer yesterday is that universities can mandate vaccine for staff and faculty, but not students. And that clip you just played there, Mike, about uh, the, the, the provincial health officer saying that she does not want to implement that mandate because it would create barriers to post-secondary education. That is not a decision that I believe is appropriate for the provincial health officer to be making. It feels more of a political decision rather than a decision based in science and data. Mm. Furthermore, um, she also said that, you know, classrooms are a site of low transmission of COVID. But what we know, well, universities haven't been in person since March 13th, 2020. So where the data coming um, coming from in terms of classrooms, particularly in post-secondary 
institutions being low transmission. If that data is coming from K to 12, we know that, you know, that doesn't correlate um, perfectly to post-secondary institutions as well. Oh, I think it's a good point because there really haven't been any classrooms in colleges and universities. So, yeah, like you said, there, there's really not a lot of data there to draw on. But what would be the difference? I mean, maybe that would be her rationale that she has consistently said that uh, schools are not big vectors of disease and there, we don't see a lot of spread in schools. So maybe that's what she's referring to. But you think there's a difference between K to 12 system and, and classrooms on university and college campuses? Is that right? I mean, I, I think there is a, a big difference. I mean, in the K-12 system, I, I mean, you might have classrooms of, of 30 people, whereas in universities, um, you can have lecture halls filled with 300, 400, 500 students. Right. And I mean, right. here's the other thing, too. All the lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 up until this point are kind of up in the air because of the surge of the Delta variant. It is my belief that we should be proceeding with our return to classes with extreme caution there's so much we still don't know about the delta variant how it impacts unvaccinated people how it impacts vaccinated people and so um yeah i think we should be using all the tools that we have on the table and ensuring student safety when we return in in on september 7th speaking to gabe leosis president of the simon fraser student society uh there were some proof of vaccination requirements Uh, announced for post-secondary this week. We had students living in university housing will require proof of vaccination. Also for some, I guess, just what they call discretionary or non-essential events on campus, like going to the, going to the campus pub, uh, going to a gym, an indoor club meeting, an indoor concert on campus. That will require proof of vaccination on campus. Were, Were you pleased to see those recommendations? Yes, we were very, I was very pleased to see those recommendations. But once again, I am questioning the consistency of the proof of vaccination system that will be um, rolled out very soon. It doesn't make sense to me why, for example, you would need proof of vaccination to go to, for example, a movie theater that might have 50 to 100 people and not to go to a lecture hall where there could be hundreds of people. And so um, that is kind of the real question here. Is, is there isn't a lot of consistency when it comes to the new uh, health orders on proof of vaccination. Here's mm-hmm. the other um, concern that we have about the new BC vaccine cards is that um, unvaccinated people who are immunocompromised or otherwise medically exempt are barred from attending these um, so-called discretionary events. This is right. something we're incredibly concerned about. Um, it is my view that it is an incredibly bad policy. It's not something that folks can control. I mean, you, you, you do not choose to be, um, a lot of people did not choose to, to be, uh, to not be able to get the vaccine for a medical reason. And so we've also not really seen a restriction on, on medically exempt people thus far in the pandemic. I mean, you could walk into a grocery store, you could walk into a cafe or another indoor public space and not wear a mask if you could prove that you had a a medical reason for not doing so. So we're kind of asking, why now? I mean, the entire idea of the BC vaccine passport, or vaccine card rather, is that when you are in a large setting, you want to have as many vaccinated people there as possible. Um, And so, you know, if you're at an event with 30 people, and 29 of those people are vaccinated, and one of them is unvaccinated because of a medical reason, 
we know that the chances of transmitting COVID in a setting like that is very uh, unlikely. So we're just questioning the merits of the decision not to allow medically exempt people to access discretionary events based on the BC vaccine card system. Okay, the minister this week, Gabe, as you know, also announced that individual colleges and universities will now have the ability to make their own rules. So we could see Simon Fraser University come up with their own system here. I want to ask you about that, but let me play a clip here for you from Ann Kang, the Minister of Advanced Education on this point, then I'll get your thoughts. So here's the minister. Colleges and universities may choose to adopt their own vaccine policies or ask for proof of vaccination that go beyond those set out for provincial order, health order. Those that do so should work with public health and will be responsible for doing their own due diligence. Okay, so we could see individual universities make their own rules here, but do I understand this correctly that they may be allowed to make their own rules, but they still can't mandate vaccinations for students. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So what, what you just played there, Minister Kang did say that universities can implement their own vaccine policies. Right. And then later on in the conference, Dr. Henry kind of walked back those comments to say, oh, yeah, um, so you can do it for staff and faculty, but not students. And so this really does not make a lot of sense to most people because students are the largest body, um, uh, the, the largest presence on campus. And again, what we, the lessons we've learned from COVID-19 over the last 16 months is that the safety measures that we put in place are not effective unless everybody is employing them. And so, you know, mandating vaccines for a particular subset of our university population while completely ignoring um, a, a, a wide array of, of, of the rest of the, the university campus really does not right. make sense to me. Well, I guess, I, it, wanna... I guess it gets back, Gabe, to the point that, we, that she made earlier in the clip we played that, you know, she argues that the risk of transmission is low in classrooms, but then she also made the point that she does not want to create barriers for people to get an, an education so this is why they're saying well maybe you can you can mandate that the professors have to be vaccinated but not the students so i mean that's the rationale for it but you know would you say i mean is the president of the student union there and you're talking to your your peers all the time i mean do most students want to want a mandatory vaccination rule yes they absolutely do people yeah. students are incredibly concerned that they're going to their class and that they're going to be sit, sitting in a packed lecture hall beside someone that they don't know, and they are completely unaware of their vaccination status. I mean, that is, that is an incredibly valid concern from students right now. And I, I understand Dr. Henry's rationale around not wanting to create additional barriers for accessing post-secondary education. I think if we're thinking about barriers that do exist right now for our students getting vaccines, it's mostly international students who are having trouble accessing vaccines because here in Canada, we are very lucky that we have a wide supply, uh, a pretty big supply of vaccines. And so a large um, uh, percentage of our population is vaccinated, but uh, international students coming from other countries may not be on a, you know, a similar vaccine schedule as Canada. And so what I say to that is, is it should be then the university's job to try and provide vaccine clinics and to make vaccines as accessible as possible. We already know that SFU, SFU has three campuses, Burnaby, Surrey, and Vancouver, 
At Burnaby and Surrey, they're already partnering with Fraser Health to provide vaccine clinics on campus. Uh, 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 at Vancouver, they are not um, providing a vaccine clinic on campus, but they are advertising a walking clinic that is happening at the convention center, which is not that far from our Vancouver campus. So I still believe that vaccines should be mandatory, but then again, it is the job of the university to make them as accessible as possible, and we're okay. already seeing this happen. All right, welcome back to the show. Should vaccinations be mandatory on BC College and University campuses? Talking about that right now with my guest, Gabe Liosas, president of the Simon Fraser University Student Society. Phone lines are open. What do you think? 604 280 9898, star 9898 on your cell. Ken and Langley. Hi, thanks, Mike. I. I figure maybe it's a good idea for that vaccination program to take place in that capacity. But, you know, in schools and stuff, we're talking about uh, possible mandatory, uh, the debate mandatory vaccines, even in just regular public schools. Um, Well, I'm not an expert, as most of us are, to where we should go with that implementation, how it should be done, how far it should go. I'm not an expert, but you know what? All I'm concerned about, Mike, and it hasn't, it just got talked about recently, and it's the most important situation right now is the kids that cannot be vaccinated now. Our focus everywhere should be on protecting them, everywhere from masking, whatever needs to be done to protect this vulnerable pool that this virus could go after. You know how a lot of sales and living cells are. They want to survive. They're going to go after whatever is vulnerable okay. to keep okay. surviving. You know what I mean? We sure, sure I do. Thank, thank you for the call. And Gabe, you touched on that earlier. You believe there should be an exemption for people who are like they're a medical exemption for people who can't get the vaccine. The small number, the rare medical cases, right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we know that um, when you get a vaccine, you are protecting yourself. You're protecting yourself from, in most cases, contracting COVID-19 or transmitting it to others. And the entire premise of getting as many people vaccinated as possible is that you want to reach herd immunity so that you are protecting those who cannot get vaccinated. And yeah. so that is, you know, essentially the whole uh, premise behind mandating a vaccine in post-secondary institutions so that if you're in a lecture hall with 300 people and there are people in there who are unvaccinated because of a medical reason, then myself as a, as a fully vaccinated person, I'm not transmitting COVID to that person and putting them in danger well. You, as well. well, you can still pass. You can still, you know, it's been pointed out by a lot of people. You can still get COVID even if you're fully vaccinated and you can still transmit it too. Maybe less it's likely, true. but yeah. it's true. And, and we're seeing more, more proof of that with the Delta variant. However, yeah. it is a lot less likely. Yeah. Okay. Bob in Nanaimo. Hey, Bob. Morning, Mike. Hi. Morning to your guest. Really like what is uh, what he's talking about here. Uh, a couple of things, Mike. I found it kind of interesting this morning that um, when uh, the you know the twenty to forty year olds that weren't getting vaccinated because of their claiming sometimes ideology, as soon as you attack their pocketbook or their playground, that ideology changed. So I'd suggest that's probably a uh, not about a, a set ideology. Secondly, my son. Um, returned from China after a bunch of years and, and started a, attending BIU in Nanaimo. As soon as things shut down, he tanked, and I arguably would say thousands of others across the country tanked because he needed, as many others do, 
that in-classroom attendance and that exposure to their professors and their instructors. And when that was lost, my son lost his direction. And I would suggest that there's many out there that are experiencing yeah. the same thing. So I think that vaccines are absolutely essential. And yes, there's a minute amount of people for medical reasons or religious that can't take it, but but insignificant in, in my belief. Okay, Bob, thank you for the call. I hope your son, um, I hope your son gets back on track there. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, this is an issue where we'll continue to follow closely here in the days ahead. It is interesting that the government is now allowing individual colleges and universities to make their own vaccine rules, but with some restrictions, as you just heard about whether students could be required to get vaccinated. I don't know. It's happening in a lot of other jurisdictions, and the pressure continues to rise here. We'll see where it goes in the days ahead. Uh, Gabe, thank you for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, one of the eternal debates now, tipping in restaurants, how much should you tip? Who should you tip? If you're just getting takeout from a restaurant, do you still tip on that? How much should you tip? It used to be, what, the standard 15%. Now a lot of people tip 20% or more. Should you tip more during the pandemic? Some restaurant owners encouraging their customers to increase their tips because they're having trouble keeping their staff. Let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Poppy Riddle. Poppy is an associate uh, research associate at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, co-author of a new study on Canadian tipping trends. And I'm very pleased to welcome Poppy. Hi. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Are people tipping more right now because of the pandemic? They Well, to summarize, they are not. Uh, this The tipping perception is still right around 15% for dine-in and about 10% for deliveries. Uh, people are self-reporting. They tip a little more than that. So we saw a little more spread, and so the average actually comes out to like just under 16%. But for the most part, we're still at 15%. And comparing to a previous study, that's not changed since 2000. Okay, that's, that's interesting to hear because I remember 15% for the longest time used to be pretty much the standard tip. Now it seems like it's more like 20% or even more. I mean, sometimes you go into a restaurant or a pub and there's an option when you're, when you're handed the keypad to pay. Sometimes there's an option there for a 25% tip. <laughs> Right. Yeah, Yeah, I've experienced that as well. And I think many people have. And um, uh, in the CBC article, uh, Bruce McAdams at University of Guelph also brought up that point is that the cashless pay systems now that have become really popular during the pandemic because you're not making direct contact. uh, You know, those interventions, those systems are, yeah, they're putting 20, 25 percent up there. But you know, we're hearing from restaurant owners and advocates for restaurateurs that that's for good reason. It's it's hard to find the workers right now. Yeah, that's right. So we've, we're hearing from restaurant owners saying they're really struggling to keep their staff. So maybe that explains why a, a higher tip percentage is, is being offered or suggested there at the checkout for sure. Are Canadians feeling more pressure 
to increase their tips or to give a really good, decent tip because of the pandemic, because of these servers are really frontline workers? You know, the, the root of that social pressure, we're not entirely sure yet. So our exploratory study uh, asked that very question. Are you feeling more social pressure uh, in regards to tipping? And about half of our respondents said, yeah, they're, they're feeling more social pressure. Um, yeah. In the data, though, what we're seeing, though, is that doesn't correlate with what their anticipated behavior is. So um, most people don't plan on changing their tipping habits at all. Yeah, okay, so a lot of people feeling pressure to tip more, but it sounds like a lot of people are just simply not giving into the pressure and they're and they're continuing to tip the same amount. Would you say that I mean a lot of people when when the people leave a tip, is there a payback there? Like do people does it make people feel good to leave a good tip? Like what does your research tell you? That, you know, that's a great question. And so when I first started looking into this, uh, I was pulling off, uh, picking up from another researcher's research that says, hey, you know, maybe tipping has more to do with generosity um, as opposed to this sort of economic utility, you know, giving something, getting something. And the more I dug into that, I came across some other Canadian researchers, Elizabeth Dunn at UBC and Laura Ackman at um, Simon Fraser University there, along with another researcher in the U.S., uh, Michael Norton at Harvard. And they had this a framework called Warm Glow for pro-social spending. And their experiments had, you know, if you were giving $20, what did you do with it? And they found that when people gave it away, they had that warm glow, that fuzzy feeling. The so warm the warm glow. Well. The warm glow. Yeah. So there's like a payback. You feel good when you tip. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's okay. some things that kind of go along with that. People have to feel that it was their choice. They feel like they're making a connection with somebody, but they're also seeing the impact of that. And, and, you know, we can probably relate to that with like Christmas presents, for example, right? You know, people that really appreciate their gift, we feel good about that. Okay. Do you think tipping should be automatic? Like people should definitely tip every single time? Or do you think it should be based on the quality of the service that you receive? Like I've heard from people say, well, I will leave a 15% tip unless I thought the service was fantastic and then I will leave a higher tip. And if the service was, if the service was lousy, I might not leave a, a tip at all. Like how do most people, what, what sort of calculus do pe- most people go through? Yeah. Well, you've put your finger on the hot topic. That's, that's the root of the topic right there is are tippings, this meritocratic, <laughs> this reward for good service. Is it to entice them to take the job? Um, is it, is it okay for it to be punitive? Um, and is it okay for people's wages to fluctuate, you know, and have their income fluctuating? So, yeah, that's the heart of the topic right there. Um, from my own point of view and the research uh, that I've read into, it's that inconsistency that's really causing the ongoing problems. Um, that income stability is really impacting people's lives that work in the restaurant industry. So I think if you were going to make a choice about what you're tipping – I would I would be consistent as opposed to using it um, in a value uh, judgment sort of way. What about tipping on takeout? I, I remember in before the dark days, before pandemic, if I did a takeout <laughs> meal, maybe sometimes yeah. I don't know. Maybe I would not. There, I I, I recall doing t- take pickup and takeout, and I would not leave a tip um, mm-hmm. because I thought, well, okay, I'm not getting table service, so therefore the tip is not required. Then the pandemic hits, you're doing more takeout yeah. food. And I, I started leaving the tip on the takeout because I, you know, mm. I started thinking about it. What do most people do on that? Do they tip on takeout or not? That's another great question. That's not really 
So, you know, tipping is a compensation model. So, but we're not really clear at the point of tipping who we're tipping and who it's going to and who that person is and what their role is. So, um, and people can be paid differently within food service from back of house to front of house to management. Um, so the question we asked about delivery takeout is what do you, uh, what's the anticipated amount for tipping? And most people report around 10%. And most, mm. and, and, and interestingly, people tend to tip a little bit more than that. Now, this is self-reported data, um, but the averages for tip deliveries actually came out more like 20, uh, sorry, 12% as an average, but mm. there were some higher higher numbers there than we saw for restaurant tipping. So I think, do you think people... Yeah, do, go you, ahead. do you think restaurant workers are adequately paid, generally speaking, uh, across Canada? Like, we're hearing stories across the country about the inability and challenge of employers to keep their staff. Like, a lot of restaurants are short-staffed. They can't find workers. And we see, we hear reports that they're encouraging people tip more because maybe that will mm-hmm. help us keep our staff. Do you think there should be, instead of pressuring people to tip more, maybe the restaurant owners should pay more to keep their staff? What do you think? Yeah, that's that's a really tough issue as well. Um, our study didn't go into that, but the author of the CBC article, Benit, did a really good job of getting some other opinions on that from authorities in this in this area. So uh, the executive director, uh, Hassel Aviles, I'm not sure if I have their name right. Um, you know, they're an advocate for paying people more and making it more consistent. Um, and then Bruce McAdams as well is also an advocate for higher and stable pay. So getting away from the tip system altogether. So they see, they both of those see the tip system as being detrimental. And there's a lot of academic research that backs that up, that the tipping culture is actually you know, when it's isolated from the patron, it actually has these other knock-on effects that are kind of hurting people and the restaurant industry as a whole more than it's benefiting them. Okay, interesting stuff, Poppy. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Wonderful. Mike, thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the crisis in Afghanistan now, the fall of the government, the takeover by the Taliban, and the desperate effort to get Canadians and our allies out of there and bring them to safety here in Canada. This morning, Federal Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan's in Canada's efforts to bring Canadians and vulnerable Afghans here to Canada and to safety is continuing. Here is the Defense Minister speaking a short time ago. And we are working with our allies to evacuate as many of our citizens and vulnerable Afghans as possible. We continue to work together to keep our planes constantly flying in and out of Hamid Karzai International Airport. And since my last update on Sunday, I can report that the Canadian Armed Forces have flown three additional flights carrying hundreds of passengers to safety, many of them women and young children. Okay, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan there. Despite that, the federal government, the Trudeau administration here, continuing to get criticized here for the effort to get our people out of there and to escape uh, the crisis there in Afghanistan. My next guest uh, knows about this personally, Seer Karimi, and he's 26 years old. He lives in Toronto, and he's trying to get his mom home from Afghanistan. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Seer, thanks for coming on. Mike, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, I'm I'm sorry for what you're going through here. I've just been reading about what's going on with your with your mom and your your efforts to get her home. When did she, your mother go to Afghanistan? So she, she went to Afghanistan back in June. Um, 
And I will say there's been an update on this whole situation as of last night. So there's been a lot of commotion about this whole situation. It kind of went viral. And because of that, I think that put some pressure and somebody responded to me. As of last night, she sent me pictures of her on a military plane. And I believe she's somewhere in Kuwait or Germany right now uh, on her way to, to get back home. But the crazy thing about all this, and I'm sure you've seen the news, is she had to abandon her family because the Taliban aren't letting nationals leave the country because they want to keep their civilians to rebuild the country, whatever that means. So I just want to make sure I share that because it's been a, it's been an interesting 24 hours for me where me and my mom both had to decide that she, she couldn't wait any longer and she had to leave. Okay, I'm glad to hear that your mother has been able to escape and get out of there. She is, she's from Afghanistan, right? Like she, she was born there. She grew up there. Yeah, born and raised in Kabul, and then she left Canada, um, you know, let's say more than 25 years ago to, to come and start a life here uh, with my father. Yeah, and she went, why did she go back there? She went to visit family, is that right? Yeah, and, I, and like I, I shared, um, you know, I, I was against the whole concept because to me Afghanistan seems very scary. I went there once when I was six, but to her it's, it's home. It's where she was raised, and right. it's where majority of her family lives. Over 20 members of her family are with her, and... That's why I, I was kind of okay with it, even throughout this whole thing, because I could hear the people around her. She was safe. But now I'm going through this whole new bittersweet experience of how do I get the rest of her family out, especially those who are at risk. I understand we can't bring a whole village over, but there's certain individuals that are at risk with the Taliban that deserve to come over and, and live a better life here. Right. And when your mom went over there in, in June... Uh, you mentioned that you were worried about that, and I can I can certainly understand that as a son. You know, I think anybody be worried about someone going over there, especially with a. I mean, back in June, what was the what was the situation there at that time? I mean, with the United States, they were drawing down their forces and stuff. I mean, were there were there concerns back then about the Taliban taking over? No, not at all. Okay. Because you know, I was even facetiming her and everything, and it seemed like she was having a great vacation from her life here in Canada. And, she was just hanging out. I think she even did a wedding. So I think just the same way that the news started to take over and say, hey, look what's happening here in Afghanistan, it hit them, too, that quickly. Yeah, when did you start to worry? I started to worry when I, when I saw the first news article that you know everybody was pulling out within like 24 hours, and the same time that they were pulling out, all the different rural areas of, of Afghanistan were just getting stepped on from the Taliban. And of course, you know, some people are saying they were being nice about it. Then you go online and you see certain videos where they aren't being so nice about it. And then once they, I got really, really concerned when I heard they were outside of Kabul. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really when I started to, to go online and start asking for help. Right. And were you in communication with your mother through all of that? You know, every morning we get in a call where she shares updates on what she's doing. And then I share updates on where I'm at with trying to get her and her family members back but like i mentioned yesterday you know it was kind of it kind of felt like a movie last night where uh, you know it was she had to go to a certain area in kabul and wait you know under underneath the canadian flag she had to go through thousands of other afghans trying to get into the airport area and she was escorted not by special forces which is kind of where i was frustrated like nobody was going to go and get her from her home she had to go somewhere to get picked up and i had to send you know a couple of our guy cousins to go with her to kind of make sure she's okay. And she literally sent me a text on WhatsApp saying, I just made it through like a thousand people. I'm, I'm in the safety zone. Um, wow. It just, it, it literally felt like a movie. And I was so worried because I was going to hold back on the whole concept till I found out that 
at the end of this month, you know, nobody can help her moving forward. Man, oh man, what what was that? I mean, when you were talking to her there, was was she scared over there? What what was what was her frame of mind like? Well, she kept trying to keep me calm, and she's like, "Hey, look, it's it's not as bad as the news makes it." But then, you know, when she get she did get through, she's like, "Okay, like, no, that's it, it is actually pretty bad because the area that you need to get to to get to the airport, the very first checkpoint is Taliban's basically checking checking out your paperwork." Then from there, you got to go through like a UK checkpoint. Then from there, you get to this. I don't want to give away all the different um, access points because I think it is to some extent supposed to be private, but it is a very rigorous process to get to a safety zone to then get escorted to the Kabul airport. Um, and the videos that she sent me, man, it's just, it, I can't imagine being her right now. And, you know, this oh. isn't in the, you're not getting on an airplane with, you know, free Coke and crackers. This is, huh. you're on the ground in a military plane. What was on the video that she sent? The video just had a bunch of them all seated, all seated on the ground, um, and they had a bunch of, I, I'm assuming, Canadian Special Forces around them kind of talking amongst each other. Um, I can't, like, I didn't see food or water nearby. Uh, there was a, it kind of, and I mean this in a serious way, it kind of looked like a Call of Duty scene to some extent. There was military planes everywhere. It was super dark. It, uh, I, I feel like she's got a story to tell when she gets back, and um, I hope she gets back. I haven't heard from her in the last uh, day. Or, it's been a day almost now since I last wow. heard from her. I'm speaking to Seer Karimi uh, about his efforts to get his mom out of Afghanistan. Uh, she went back home there to visit family in June, and Seer has been trying to get her home since the uh, country co- collapsed into turmoil here with the takeover of the of the Taliban. I mean... Sierra, what has this been like for you emotionally? I mean, you must be you must be wrecked by this. What's it been like? It, it's I have been wrecked to some extent in terms of constantly thinking about all the different things I could be doing or should be doing. Um, but luckily, the thing that's keeping me calm is okay. Just you have open communication with your mom. Just make sure you focus on doing things versus thinking about what could happen. Um, and right now I'd say my focus has gone from my mother, who I believe is on, is on the way home, you know, knock on wood. My focus is now, how do we get these other members out? Especially, I don't know if you saw the post today that said the Taliban's are just, they're stopping. No Afghan nationals are getting to the airport. So that just, it seems like it's becoming almost near impossible to get everybody else out. And, you know, at the beginning of this, it, it seemed like a, a mission for me to get my mom and her family out. And I, I don't know if it's even possible anymore. Yeah, what do you think about the government's uh, efforts here to get people out? I think they're doing everything they can. Obviously, like like any situation, you can always do better. Um, I can't imagine what their inboxes look like right now, especially with the amount of emails I've sent. But I just, I, it's so disorganized. Yeah. It's And that's what everybody's talking about. You, they pulled out so fast. And they expected things to go well. And you can't pull up that fast and be shocked at the response and the speed of the Taliban, but also the mess of the, you know, the evacuation. It's kind of like they, sh- they almost saw this coming, I would hope. You know, anybody who, who pulled this stunt should have seen that, hey, this isn't going to look good or go well. And it's not. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sierra, I hope your mom is okay. It sounds like she's... She's made it out of there, at least on the first leg of the trip, right? So, I mean, you're confirmed she's she's out of the country now, right? I believe so, yeah. she. Uh, yeah. The last message I got from her was her uh, in front of a military plane, and then she sent a WhatsApp 
message saying I'm on the plane, but let's see when she gets Wi-Fi and hopefully she can she can shoot me a text and I'm, I'm going to be sure to update everybody um, once she's safe and sound here in Canada. Okay, I hope you're reunited with her soon. Thanks for sharing the story. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening.